everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I'm joined with Dr. Austin Baraki. Today, we're talking about booze. Not like the bad, you know, sound effect from the crowd when you do something silly, but like alcohol. And this is <laughs> this is a question that we get all the time in some permutation. How does alcohol uh, affect my health or my gains or even, you know, what's your favorite whiskey drink? So we're going to cover all that and more on this week's podcast. But first, Austin, uh, how you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Still kicking. Ready to talk about this topic. Uh, I agree. We get questions about it a lot. And it's um, a topic on the podcast that I also deal with in real life practice in the hospital, like all the time, including as recently as this morning. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, because it, it happens as super common as we'll discuss. Now, the way we're breaking this down, the first part of the podcast is about alcohol and health. Uh, the second part is about performance and uh, training adaptation, stuff like that. But I don't just skip to the second half. I, I feel like the first part of it, you're going to get a lay of the land. And a lot of these themes are repeated throughout the podcast as far as the effects that alcohol can have on various outcomes. Um, but before we hop in here, uh, shameless plug. Hey, we got we got two new services that we're offering here at Barbell Medicine. All right. Service number one, we're, we're doing form checks. Now, there's a nominal fee because we didn't want to be spammed with a bunch of people's, you know, videos uh, while we were trying to provide like in-depth reviews. But if you've ever been curious, like, hey, is my form okay? One, the answer is yes. <laughs> Two, <laughs> if, you, if you want some more specific feedback uh, on, you know, it, because you want to see improvements in performance or your uh, or efficiency, we are doing this privately through um, our website. So you can uh, go on barbellmedicine.com. You can look up uh, form checks and you'll get paired with one of our coaches and they do a full, a thorough review of your video, uh, of your technique of may, and make programming suggestions and uh, follow-up suggestions. So it's not just like, you know, push your knees out. That's it. It's uh, more in depth than that. And the idea is to give people uh, a sort of avenue to connect to our coaches and get some professional level service. Uh, and also we're doing consultations now. So if you've, you know, got a burning question that hasn't been able, that you haven't been able to get uh, suitably answered in our forum, in our Facebook group, on our Instagram lives, on, our, you know, whatever, uh, we can pair you up again with the Barbell Medicine Coach, has direct lines of access to Austin and I, uh, and you can get your questions answered. So those things might be useful to you or not, but hey, they're new and we wanted to talk about them <laughs> for, a, for a second. So, all right. Let's hop into this. Oh, the last disclaimer, uh, neither Austin nor myself are drinking at the moment. I have a, I have an A&W root beer in front of me. It's diet. Don't worry, folks. It's diet. Uh, <laughs> Austin, what do you, uh, I know you're on ward, so I, I don't think that you're having a beverage at this time. I just finished training. So I just, uh, I just threw down a shake before this podcast to hold me over until I'm ready to eat dinner in a little bit. <laughs> that, yes, that will, uh, that will come up later as to what you should have drank, should have consumed <laughs> yeah. post-workout. Okay, so we're going to hop into this podcast now on um, alcohol intake. First, let's get a background of like what the current state of things are. So 2015, uh, U.S. National Survey on Drug Use and Health uh, estimated that Americans over the age of 12, uh, that so that, that group of folks, in the last 30 days, about 50% of them have used alcohol at least once. Um, a quarter of them reported binge drinking, which is drinking more than five drinks at one setting. Um, and about six and a half percent reported heavy drinking, which is uh, drinking more than five drinks on more than five days in the past week. Uh, there's been a 30 percent increase in binge and heavy drinking since 2001 to 2012. 
And unhealthy alcohol use is the third leading preventable cause of death in the United States, causing about one out of every 10 deaths among adults aged 20 to 64 years, or about 88,000 deaths per year in the United States. And obviously, this is a big global problem, too. So if you're living outside the U.S. and you're like, hmm, I wonder if uh, – alcohol, you know, excess alcohol intake is a problem in my country? The answer is yes. <laughs> Probably is, for sure. <laughs> Probably is, yeah. In fact, there's a, a 2014 review that we put uh, put in the description, uh, the, in the show notes. So if you're curious, it's a big old honking PDF, and they go through country by country and kind of characterize this. But uh, I, didn't, I didn't see any countries missing from that report. <laughs> it would, I'm just saying this is a large problem. It, it obviously is larger than just the United States. But uh, yeah, more than half of the respondents who are over the age of 12 to that survey said that they drank in the last month. What 13 year old is drinking? <laughs> I, do you remember the first time you had a drink Austin? Yeah, I think I was probably like, a, I don't know, a junior or a senior in high school or something like that. So later, yeah. than, later than a lot of people I knew. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've already been accepted and passed all of your the, <laughs> potential things you want to go into. So it's not going to get you in trouble. Right. I think, uh, I remember I was probably, I might have been 11. I would, I didn't like, yeah, I know. You're like, wow, younger. No, I, I was at the bowling alley with my dad and I think there was like a beer in arm's reach. And I was, I thought it might've been a soda. I wasn't aware that it was beer. I wasn't, you know, but then I was like, no, oh, well, it's in a can that soda comes into. And you know, I, I do like soda. So <laughs> I had one drink and I was like, well, no, that's the worst soda I've ever had. It tastes like, yeah, it tastes terrible. So that was probably my first uh, my first drink. It, it was not an enjoyable experience. But yeah, but I think it was sometime in high school or uh, uh, later in, later on in high school that I actually chose to consume my first alcoholic beverage. So, in any case, large large issue. Um, now, within this topic, there is a lot of different nomenclatures, a lot of specific terms we're going to use, and we're going to try to do our best here. This is like an evolving landscape. Um, so for example, like alcoholism is no longer the preferred term. We talk about alcohol use disorder. Um, so we're trying to do our best here. Bear with us. We might have some slip ups just because, you know, old habits die hard. But, uh, Austin, you want to start with this, uh, this terminology thing, talking about the standard drink? Yeah. So, so a lot of the guidelines and discussion and quantitation, in other words, like measuring how much, uh, how many, uh, how much alcohol is somebody consuming? You have to quantify it using some basic unit. And so that most commonly that is referred to as a standard drink. The problem is that there's variability in the definition of what a standard drink is between countries and alcohol uh, is a uh, chemistry term when it, as it pertains to our diet, we're talking about a specific molecule called ethanol and we'll get a little to that a little bit more in a bit, but this is usually measured in grams. So in the U S somewhere around like 14 or 15 grams of ethanol or alcohol is what's, what's, uh, um, kind of counts as a standard drink. And for practical purposes, you can think of this as uh, equivalent to a 12 ounce beer, about five ounces of wine or an ounce and a half or like a usual shot of an 80 proof spirit, like a typical kind of scotch or, or a lower proof bourbon. Um, whereas if you go to Europe in the, in the UK, about eight grams of alcohol. So about half <laughs> is what is used to define a standard drink. And then in Japan, it's almost 20 grams of alcohol. So it's a bit more. So there's this wide range of kind of how many grams uh, our use of alcohol uh, uh, make up a standard drink uh, for the purposes of quantifying people's intake. So this can make things a little bit tricky as far as, um, you know, national guidelines for what counts as excessive alcohol intake or, or um, you know, safe alcohol intake, quote unquote. And we'll, we'll get to that more a little bit later. 
Yeah. So especially, you know, if you were comparing U.S., the U.S. recommendations versus the U.K. recommendations for the amount of drinks you should have per day under the current guidelines, you you might prefer the U.K. guidelines because it's <laughs> almost double. You could, you're like, wow, I could have a lot more drinks. Uh, was just that the, their standard drink is is much, much smaller. Um, so that being said, the, the current guidelines are nearly universal when you're looking at national and international organizations um, based on the standard drink size that they're using. And so for right now, uh, the guidelines are that women can have up to one standard drink per day in the United States. So again, that's one 12 ounce beer, five ounces of wine, or one and a half ounces of an 80 proof spirit. Uh, and then up to two drinks per day for men. Um, that's also considered moderate drinking. So when we talk about moderate intake, that's what we're talking about. And if you extrapolate that out, you know, if you're a woman having one drink per day, that means that per week you're having seven drinks or less. And if you're a man, that means you're having 14 drinks or less. Uh, additionally, additionally, in these current guidelines, they also stipulate that, hey, we're not telling you to start drinking if you don't drink right now. They're just saying that that's like the kind of uh, upper limit for what would generally be considered uh, safer, or even in some cases, as we'll review later on, maybe health promoting um, in, some, in some instances. But it's not like, hey, if you're not drinking this, you're missing out and you should start. <laughs> They make it. They make it clear. But I, I can understand that. You know, you you hear about in the lay press, particularly like red. You know, the effects of resveratrol from red wine, or the you know tocopherols, or the flavonoids, or you know some other you know chemical, right, that promotes health, and it's only found in liquor. And so you gotta you know you gotta start drinking to get those health <laughs> effects. So I, I can understand people's plight here because it does get uh, kind of confusing and, and further confusing when you actually look at the guidelines because who knows how many grams are in alcohol. Besides you, now the woke barbell medicine audience who we've just described this to, when you start looking at like, okay, I can have, you know, 30 grams of alcohol per day. It's like, okay, well, what, what is that in like actual, you know, drinks of, in, of real world intake? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And then like, well, what if my, what if the bottle of beer I have is 16 ounces? It's like, well, that's more mm -hmm. than one drink. So yeah. uh, in any case, current guidelines, again, one drink uh, per day. Uh, up to one drink per day for women and up to two drinks per day for men. It's moderate drinking. And again, no, uh, pr this is for adults over the age of 21 and uh, excludes all pregnant women. So effectively, if you're drinking while you're pregnant or if you're underage, that's considered like an alcohol uh, excessive drinking. Uh, uh, so as we'll get into, but there's other terms here, Austin. So... We'll Let's carry start. on. Yeah. yeah, we'll carry on. <laughs> yeah, so so there's a broad, very broad category of just quote unquote unhealthy alcohol use. And and this is not the most useful term, but it's basically the spectrum of alcohol use that could result in health consequences, which I would argue is almost any amount of intake could result in some health consequence uh, to a person, which will become apparent when we talk about what all the potential health consequences are. Um, more useful are terms like risky drinking which is defined as uh, intake greater than those thresholds that you just described. So greater than 14 per week for men, greater than seven per week for women, or if they're uh, men are taking in more than four drinks on any one day or women more than three on any one day. And this actually applies to almost a, a almost a third of Americans exceed this, uh, these thresholds for kind of risky, risky drinking, or risky use of alcohol. So a pretty substantial proportion of people. Um, to go even further, binge drinking is been defined as drinking so much within about two hours that blood alcohol concentrations reach 
0.08 grams per deciliter. And we'll get more into the concentrations later and what that means. Um, but in women, this typically occurs about after about four standard drinks and in men about five standard drinks within a relatively short uh, uh, time frame that would quanti- uh, qualify as, as binge drinking. And then finally, alcohol use disorder, that's the term that we're going to be using. I, and, and this is what most people think of as quote unquote alcoholism. And, and this is something that, uh, you know, we're trying to shift. So it's not so much of a pejorative label with uh, so many like negative connotations attached to it. And, and this is something that, you know, ha- that shift has happened even since we were, you know, in school and, and it's taken some effort to retrain our, at least uh, our brains to, to use this phrase. And I, I work with my students and residents to change that terminology as well. Um, so we're not necessarily labeling people as alcoholic, but rather they're people who who have alcohol use disorder uh, or who are dealing with alcohol use disorder. And so this condition has a bunch of diagnostic criteria in in the DSM that are kind of beyond our scope um, in this particular podcast. But oh, generally, it's going to describe a problematic pattern of alcohol use that leads to clinically significant impairments or distress. Um, and there can be a whole bunch of ways that this manifests from a psych- psychological standpoint, social relationships like legal consequences, behavioral disturbances, or even physiologic consequences like developing an actual disease, uh, for example, like liver disease as a result of alcohol uh, intake. Yep. So big umbrella term, uh, just unhealthy alcohol use, which, you know, I agree is unhelpful, <laughs> but that's that's how, kind of how we're lumping this together. And then you can, there's risky drinking, binge drinking, and then uh, the grand poobah alcohol use disorder. Uh, this is pretty common. Uh, and I like, like, again, you just dealt with this this This, morning and and it'd be very rare that even one of your stints in the hospital that you would not see uh, an issue related to, uh, either alcohol use disorder or alcohol intake in general. Yeah. It effectively doesn't happen ever. (laughs) Correct. Yes. Uh, so that brings up just something we'll touch on briefly, which is kind of screening for alcohol use disorder. And I I actually think this uh, does apply to our, uh, listenership here. So even if you're not a healthcare professional, you may be a strength coach, or you may be working with other folks on behavioral change, or this might just be like a self-improvement type of thing for you. So having a way to kind of quickly identify like, is this behavior risky, (laughs) you know, or is this something, a target that I may need to address? Uh, So we had our screening podcast. If you're curious about like what makes a good screening test, you should check that out. But yeah, there's good evidence right now that screening for unhealthy alcohol use in primary care settings uh, in adults 18 and over, uh, that that works, is cost-effective, and should be done. Um, Not so much in younger populations, but that's a whole whole different deal. So the two two kind of questionnaires that are freely available and linked in the description below are the AUDIT-C. AUDIT stands for Alcohol Use Disorders Identification Test. It's a a three-question thing that has to deal with how much alcohol you've drank uh, in the past uh, few months. Like, so how many drinks and then how often have you had that many drinks? And then the, uh, the other one is the SASQ, uh, which is actually a one item, uh, one question uh, kind of questionnaire. And so the idea would be if you're you know, a healthcare professional, you, are, you already have access to all the, you know, these resources and you should be doing that regularly, particularly if you're in primary care. So you don't need me to belabor that point. Uh, if you're a strength coach or working with folks, uh, you know, on, on, you know, getting healthy and, and, and making healthy behavioral changes, this should be part of like the history, the, the intake form um, that you're, you're kind of uh, dealing with just asking people, you know, how often do they consume alcohol? Uh, and, you know, 
you may add a further question like how how many times in the last six months have you consumed you know greater than six drinks at one setting just something for you to know as a coach and then again maybe a target for you to either address or refer people for uh for management and yeah i think again, I, I think that if you're a coach and you're working with people who are coming for for training and things like that you may actually be surprised if you actually ask how often you're going to find people who use alcohol pretty heavily uh even yep. if you don't suspect it so yeah yeah, especially for very physically active individuals who do tend to be younger, but also tend to drink more, uh, which, yeah, that's an interesting sort of connection because you wouldn't necessarily assume that just off the top of your head, but that's what the data shows. And so, yeah, I think this is an important uh, part of kind of that intake questionnaire. In addition to getting like a dietary history and a physical activity history and education sort of history and stuff like that, uh, definitely asking people how much they drink. And uh, ideally, you do this in a non-judgmental way. So just, uh, that's, that's the, the pro tip for a, uh, uh, for a client or patient interview. Okay. So we talked about some terminology, some nomenclature, uh, and now we're going to go talk about alcohol, what, uh, what it is and, and how the body kind of deals with it. So as Austin referred to alcohol as a chemical, uh, it's ethanol, I'm not going to list out the, you know, structure <laughs> of it. Because pe people are really going to turn the podcast off, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a chemical. Um, and in the context of our diets, we normally refer to it as ethanol. Uh, for the rest of the podcast, we'll just call it alcohol, uh, unless we're talking about a specific type of alcohol. Uh, the chemical structure actually most closely resembles a carbohydrate. However, its metabolism is very similar to that of dietary fatty acids. So in the body, uh, it's absorbed very readily throughout the entire gastrointestinal tract. Uh, it's broken down via an enzyme. So it's called alcohol dehydrogenase, which is ADH. Uh, and it forms acetaldehyde, which is highly toxic uh, in and of itself and is a known carcinogen. Now, fortunately, this particular uh, molecule doesn't last for too long in the body. Uh, and it's, it's broken down via acetaldehyde dehydrogenase to form acetate. Acetate then feeds into the Krebs cycle, uh, which creates ATP, so energy, carbon dioxide, and water. And that's very similar to fatty acid metabolism, which ultimately gets broken down to acetyl-CoA, which enters the Krebs cycle and forms energy, carbon dioxide, and water. I know what you guys are thinking. What does this matter? Is this on the test? The answer is no, but I wanted to, <laughs> to show you guys how this is similar to fatty acid metabolism. Um, on metabolism, this actually varies pretty wi uh, widely amongst individuals, and it kind of depends on a lot of different things like liver size, your body mass, genetics, and tolerance. Uh, so for example, there are different versions of the ADH, the alcohol dehydrogenase, and the acetaldehyde dehydrogenase enzyme that can work more or less efficiently than others, and that can actually play a role in the development of alcohol use disorder. Um, so we talked about acetaldehyde being highly toxic. It's one of those, uh, it's a, a molecule that's known to cause like a lot of the negative experiences that people have with, uh, increased levels of alcohol intake. So headaches, nausea, uh, hangover, stuff like that. If you have an enzyme like the alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme that works really, really well, so it's fast, but then you have a slow acetaldehyde enzyme, so you can't get rid of it very fast, very quickly, uh, you might not drink as much because the unpleasant side effects are substantially higher in you. And in fact, we actually see data on that when we talk about what are the causes of alcohol use disorder. You see this sort of pattern, uh, different genetics com uh, contributing to that. Um, in any case, an additional thing that you should know is that alcohol dehydrogenase is not the only way that we metabolize alcohol. It's just like the main, the 
it's the uh, it's the cavalry, the thing that gets called immediately to do the job to metabolize alcohol. Once that system is saturated, is overwhelmed, there are other systems that come into play. However, once you max that system out, the what happens is you end up depleting this other energy substrate called NADH plus, which alters a ratio of NAD to NADH. And so what happens there, you don't need to know what either of those two things are, but that actually impairs the Krebs cycle, impairs your ability to make new glucose, impairs fatty acid oxidation, which is a fancy way of saying breaking down fatty acids for fuel. And all of this leads to uh, triglyceride accumulation in the liver, i.e. fatty liver disease. And if that goes along unchecked, it eventually causes permanent liver damage, which is known as cirrhosis. So that's, you can, that's when you get to meet me in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Best case scenario, that's how you meet Baraki. If you've been trying to meet Baraki for a long time and you haven't been able to do it successfully by coming to one of our seminars or sliding his DMs. Yeah, cirrhosis, cirrhosis will do it. <laughs> that'll, that'll do it. Yeah. So I just wanted to lay out the mechanism by which alcohol intake can actually cause that because I think a lot of people just assume, well, alcohol itself is just toxic to all these tissues and the alcohol itself is doing the damage, but it's really the metabolism and the metabolic kind of byproducts can actually be worse than the alcohol itself. Um, from an energy standpoint, each gram of alcohol is about seven to seven and a half kilocalories. And if you think back to your biochemistry or nutritional classes, if you've taken them, um, protein is about four kilocalories, carbohydrates are about four kilocalories, and dietary fat is nine kilocalories. So alcohol is somewhere between uh, protein and carb and uh, dietary fat. This can account for about 10% of total daily energy intake for moderate consumers of alcohol and up to 50% of total daily energy intake for people with alcohol use disorder. Um, so once you take in the alcohol, the blood levels of alcohol tend to rise. But since there's no normal concentration of alcohol in the bloodstream, there is sort of this threshold model for toxicity, toxicity meaning undesired sort of side effects. Uh, this can, the, the absolute threshold can vary by tolerance, but a few examples here. Uh, when you're at about 50 milligrams per deciliter, which is about 0.05 blood alcohol concentration. So when people say, oh, I got pulled over and the officer thought that I might be under the influence. So I did a breathalyzer test because you know it's fine. And I, I blew 0.05. So that's not uh, in all the states right now, that's not considered driving impaired, um, but it is, you know, you do have alcohol in your system. But at that level, uh, impaired judgment can occur, diminished fine motor coordination can occur. Um, and in general, things like that tend to happen with uh, at higher intensities and in a wider swath of the population once the blood alcohol levels start to increase. So, for example, if you get up to a blood alcohol concentration of 0 0.08, uh, so that is the legal limit. So if you blow that or above, you are considered to be impaired. Even if you feel fine, uh, most people have some demonstrable sort of deficit. And uh, yeah, side effects, again, impaired coordination, impaired judgment, fine motor coordination, you can have difficulty with gait and balance. Um, that, that all happens. But again, it varies widely by tolerance and uh, genetic stuff. So, yeah, I added, I added this kind of spectrum just to, to um, illustrate that there is variability in, in how individuals feel and how they function and how they experience differing levels of alcohol in the blood. Um, so that kind of describes the metabolism and the bioenergetics of alcohol. Uh, and, we, and we briefly alluded to sort of some of the epidemiology 
uh, behind, you know, excess or, or unhealthy alcohol consumption. But what causes like unhealthy alcohol uh, consumption? And if you've listened to any of the Barbell Medicine podcasts in the past, you probably know what's coming next. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> it is. Yes. Uh, human conditions are super complicated and, and particularly the experience of those conditions can are, is probably best modeled by this biopsychosocial model, meaning that there are biological, psychological, social, environmental factors that all contribute to the experience of the person. So, and there's complex interactions between these different sort of, uh, you know, categories. So it's not like a person comes in who's got liver cirrhosis and Austin goes, oh yeah, this is liver cirrhosis psychiatric. Like that's just a psychiatric, all it's, all we mean is that the actual development of the cirrhosis or of the alcohol use disorder that preceded the cirrhosis, uh, is that is there's multiple sort of inputs there. So biologically there are many different inputs, but one of the biggest sort of predictors and risk factors for, uh, alcohol use disorder has to do with your genetics. And I alluded to this earlier when I was talking about the different enzymatic activity. Uh, so for example, one of the, uh, alcohol dehydrogenase enzymes, uh, one of the variants is commonly found in Chinese, Japanese, and, and people of Korean descent, but is rare in European uh, and African descent populations. Uh, it actually appears to be protective against alcohol use disorder uh, because it increases the rate of metabolism from alcohol to acetaldehyde, which causes all those unpleasant effects that I told you about. But then the, you, since you don't have the, since they don't have the an enzyme that breaks that down faster, they get all this this high concentration of acetaldehyde. They feel terrible. So, what do they do in, in response to that? On average, they don't drink as much, which means they're at lower risk for alcohol use disorder. Uh, there are other genetics that play in here, um, particularly with respect to different reward pathways in the brain, and that's a whole complex feature that goes all the way back to the uh, in utero sort of development. Um, there are also psychiatric causes. So particular psychiatric traits that are known risk factors for alcohol use disorder include neuroticism, impulsivity, and extroversion uh, tend to be associated with higher risks. Uh, social inputs are super important here. So prenatal exposure to alcohol, uh, different parenting patterns, uh, peer influences, education level. Yeah, there's a lot. So there's no smoking gun here. And some of the stuff is modifiable and some of the stuff is not modifiable. But the idea that, uh, you know, uh, excess alcohol use or alcohol use disorder is just a failing of like willpower or something like that is a reductionist narrative that we're just not going to entertain here. Um, yeah, that's the, that, that's the very conversation that I actually just had <laughs> earlier today with the individual. You know, they were they were describing their struggles with this over the course of many years and how you know definitely they it's not like they don't know that the alcohol was was harming them, but they frequently ended up in various situations um, and and had a number of uh, challenges that that re repeatedly over time led to some level of intake and and you know we had to have the the tough conversation that it's not a necessarily you know somebody's fault for just choosing to not say no or something like that this stuff is all very complex um and and it's part of why it's also very difficult uh a difficult thing to to battle and it's a lifelong battle for for many folks and and um so yeah it's tough yeah i think people get uncomfortable when we are you know, say it's, you know, it's not necessarily your fault or there are, you know, complex things that are beyond your control here. You know, people are like, oh, you liberals, you know, <laughs> but, and I say that not jokingly because I've been in the YouTube, our YouTube comments, which, Hey, if you haven't been on our YouTube channel lately, we got a ton of new content. Don't like stop listening to the podcast and go there. But afterwards, just make a note, go to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. We got a ton of new content there. The, the thing isn't that 
we're saying these individuals aren't responsible for their experience, right? Or responsible for for trying, you know, making changes in their life. It's just that the situation that they may have found themselves in may not entirely be something they got to choose. So the best course forward isn't necessarily just saying, we'll just try harder. It's addressing the factors that are modifiable uh, and, and involving the person in those those different choices. So um, just wanted to address that because people are going to accuse us of, you know, absolving folks of personal responsibility. And I don't think we're trying to do that. I think we're no. trying to em- empower individuals to take ownership of this stuff, but based in evidence on like what they can actually control and uh, and stuff like that. So yep. moving, on, moving on. All right, Dr. Baraki, you're our uh, resident al- uh, alcohol use disorder expert. What <laughs> does the data say on alcohol intake and health? A lot of things, in fact. Um, as we mentioned earlier with some of the uh, statistics we cited at the outset, that somewhere around 88,000 deaths per year, give or take, in the United States are directly attributed to alcohol use. Uh, about 3 million uh, worldwide, which is about 5% of all deaths. And and these are directly attributable to alcohol use. I suspect that many more are indirectly attributable to, to alcohol use in, in varying forms. And as a result, the kind of uh, estimates of the economic costs of alcohol use are estimated to be over $250 billion, which is a hefty sum. Um, and it's also estimated about one in 10 deaths among working age adults is related to or results from excessive drinking. So pretty substantial, you know, contributions to what we call morbidity and mortality, which is fancy ways of saying disease and, and death, as well as uh, substantial economic costs that comes through in varying forms, you know, whether it's loss of productivity or health related healthcare related costs, or, you know, a bunch of other ways that these, uh, these um, kind of costs manifest. Um, there are some uh, uh, kind of bodies of evidence, particularly uh, some epidemiologic and observational data sets that have found positive findings associated with moderate alcohol intake. And this is these are the kind of things that result in a lot of headlines that people see very commonly in the in the media, where you know moderate alcohol intake may be associated with a particular positive health outcome. Um, and we've talked before about kind of nutrition science and and what the best tools are to uh, kind of study it. Um, there definitely are not randomized controlled trials of alcohol intake out there. Um, but a lot of this, as I mentioned, are large scale epidemiologic and observational data sets. And it can be tough, you know, to adequately control for or address all the potential kind of confounding and moderating factors that may exist in a population. Just one example that you mentioned earlier being like the genetic uh, variations that people may have in their, in their um, kind of the enzymes that they use to metabolize alcohol that may, you know, influence whether somebody uh, ends up drinking more or less. Um, unless you specifically measure those kind of polymorphisms in that particular study, it's going to be hard to adjust for those kind of things. Um, so anyway, this this um, area of research is quite uh, complex. And I, you know, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that moderate alcohol uh, intake may be, um, is, is, appears to be associated with a bunch of uh, positive health outcomes. I suspect that it is not directly causal of all of those positive health outcomes. It may cause some of the positive health outcomes. Um, but I suspect that as we learn more, we may find um, that there are more complex relationships at play here to explain kind of some of these positive findings that we see with moderate levels of alcohol intake. But it's all to be determined uh, as uh, as this research kind of continues. At the other end of the spectrum from moderate levels of intake, as intake gets heavier and heavier up to the point of, you know, 
outright alcohol use disorder, then we definitely see those benefits fall off pretty significantly. And we see both short and long-term risks really start to skyrocket and quality of life becomes substantially impaired. Um, so, so among the short-term risks, um, you know, varying forms of injuries uh, uh, become uh, a consideration. So individuals might have experienced falls with traumatic injuries as a result, via motor vehicle uh, accidents, drowning, burns, things like that. And, uh, and you cited this statistic here that I was not aware of, that about 30% of homicide and unintentional injury cases in the United States have blood alcohol levels of greater than 0.1, which is kind of... Yeah, you're, you're right, drunk. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Right. I mean, it's just, it, when, you, when I read this report, uh, I was like, my mouth, I was at a coffee shop. Yeah. And I, I, I could I could not drink coffee. My motor control was... <laughs> Transiently <because> impaired. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess if you would have asked me, like, you know, is there a relationship between alcohol intake and, you know, injuries? I'd say, sure. And then if you said, what about violence? I'd be like, Sure. Uh, crime. Sure. But the scope, yeah. I would not have gotten that high. And or, But, you know, that's that's what you get when you when you start reading this stuff. And so I, very similarly to the quality of life, you know, discussion you just had, there are likely a lot of confounding, you know, potential confounders that need to be sussed out. But this that that level of inebriation uh, at that, you know, prevalence is. Yeah, it's eye-opening. So in any case, uh, I was I was shocked to read that too. Same thing with the violence, that two-thirds of victims who suffered violence by an intimate partner reported alcohol had been a factor and up to 30% for stranger victimization, so people where they didn't know their assailant or whoever had harmed them. It's just, uh, yeah, a lot of short-term risks with um, alcohol use, particularly if it's above um, that particular threshold where, you know, people, their judgment starts to be clouded, they, you know, are... are they're lacking some executive function. Um, yeah. And, and then again, you have, you know, things that are probably more intuitive, like alcohol poisoning. You're like, oh yeah, that could be a thing if you consume too much alcohol or, uh, uh, and pregnancy related issues. So miscarriage, fetal alcohol syndrome, et cetera. The actual data on this is again, also eye opening that one in 10 pregnant women age 18 to 44 reported consuming alcohol in the previous month while they were pregnant. Uh, and then three, 3% uh, had participated in binge drinking in the last month. Which, you know, I did my uh, my OB rotation at LA County. Yeah, which, I mean, I saw this obviously, but again, if you would have asked me, what's the percentage? I wouldn't have said ten percent. You know, had 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 consumed some sort of alcohol in the last month, and I wouldn't think that the binge drinking uh, is that is that high. But that's what you get when you dive into the literature. You you find you you learn stuff. So a lot of short term risks. Uh, Austin, what about long term risks? This is probably more true. Uh, so, sort of uh, important to our, our listenership. Yeah, definitely a lot of long term risks to uh, alcohol intake above kind of the recommended limits that we discussed earlier. So we can take these by a few different uh, kind of common issues in organ systems. Cardiovascular disease is one that we always uh, uh, talk about uh, very commonly since it's the leading cause of death in the U.S. and in the world. So this is, uh, you know, heart disease. Uh, um, and the data here are mixed, I will say. Um, it's estimated that alcohol contributes to a little over 3% of all cardiovascular disease deaths uh, worldwide. There are, like I said, some, uh, you know, people will cite, find and cite uh, some epidemiologic data, some observational data on moderate alcohol use um, appearing to reduce cardiovascular risk, particularly, particularly in certain uh, uh, populations. 
However, we also know that uh, you know hev- uh, heavier levels of intake are associated with uh, several other risks. So things like increasing you know rates of uh, risk of high blood pressure, um, as well as uh, another heart condition called atrial fibrillation that you may hear like TV commercials about if you live in the U.S. And we know also that decreasing or, or stopping intake altogether can have pretty potent effects on decreasing blood pressure and the risk of atri- uh, recurrent atrial fibrillation uh, uh, as well in these individuals. Um, and so you know. I have a hard time telling somebody that they should, if they don't already drink, that they should start start drinking to decrease their cardiovascular risk. I definitely don't do that uh, with folks. But among folks who have high blood pressure, for example, who have atrial fibrillation, this is a question that I ask every single one of them um, to, to get a sense of how, how much alcohol they use. And no, recognizing that this is something, kind of one of the levers that you can pull to, to manage that condition a little bit better, particularly, for example, if somebody says they really don't want to take a particular medication, then I can say, well, here's what you can do to, to achieve that. Um, but the, the relationship with cardiovascular disease appears to be complicated. I'll leave it at that. Um, more uh, straightforward is the relationship between alcohol and a whole host of different cancers. Um, there and, and some are, are direct kind of toxicities, uh, mouth and throat, esophagus, um, things like that, uh, liver uh, uh, cancer as well. And, and some other ones as well have been associated with alcohol intake and, and excessive alcohol use is thought to contribute to somewhere between three and 4% of, of cancer deaths across a wide range of different uh, organ systems in the body. Um, other topics that are uh, often relevant to people in our audience, so, so endocrine or hormone-related disruptions, heavy alcohol use definitely can contribute to hypogonadism or low testosterone and all of those uh, consequences. So if I have an individual who is reporting symptoms of uh, hypogonadism, reporting symptoms of low testosterone and wants to pursue testing for it and things like that, then you know, in addition to some of the other things we've talked about before, like sleep and checking for sleep apnea risk, I'm also asking about alcohol use. Uh, uh, as well, because that's something that can uh, can influence that and is something that we can modify. And sure enough, a lot of times we see people's uh, um, endocrine function and their testosterone levels return back to normal when, when this is addressed. Um, I'd say that overwhelmingly the most common uh, alcohol-related complication that I see uh, outside of kind of just, you know, alcohol intoxication and withdrawal is going to be liver disease. Um, you mentioned how it can contribute to fatty liver disease or what's what's traditionally been called alcoholic fatty liver disease. And, and that can progress to kind of a permanent scarring and fibrosis of the liver called cirrhosis. And cirrhosis can result in a ton of other uh, complications that are extremely unpleasant and make cirrhosis one of my least favorite uh, uh, conditions to routinely uh, uh, manage uh, because of all the horrific kind of complications that can result. Um, and so uh, uh, alcohol use disorder uh, uh, as a cause of cirrhosis is actually a very uh, common reason for people to end up uh, getting liver transplants these days if they kind of qualify and, and go through that whole whole process. It's also a reason why, you know, alcohol use disorder, particularly when it relapses, might be a reason why somebody who uh, would have been eligible for a liver transplant ends up not being able to get one if they uh, end up relapsing to, to alcohol use again, which can be which can be tough. Yeah, that's probably one of the bigger reasons why people end up getting admitted to the hospital, certainly with respect to alcohol use disorder versus, you know, it's, it's hard to attribute cardiovascular disease, you know, directly to right. alcohol use disorder, same thing with cancers. And, and you know, the reason why people get admitted to the hospital is because they need that, you know, immediate care. Immediate, yeah, correct. Yeah. And so uh, tenth, the biggest, you know, one that you probably see is going to be liver disease. Um, yeah, it's we would refer to patient, oh, it's the liver patient, you know, and, and which everybody understood to mean like there's complicated, there's a lot of stuff going on, and this is, you know, not going to be uh, an easy patient to kind of 
uh, work up and, and, and manage and is likely to be back soon. So yeah. it'd be one of those, one of the things you would obviously want to avoid. Um, but yeah, you see other stuff, you see pancreatitis. So the, inf- you know, inflammation and damage to the pancreas, uh, sleep disturbance is another huge one. Um, so alcohol disrupts sleep architecture. So the actual normal phases of sleep, you get shorter REM sleep, for example. So people often will use alcohol as, you know, nightcap help put them to sleep because it is a CNS central nervous system depressant, but it actually can compromise your REM sleep. Now I'm not worried about people having a glass of wine, uh, for, uh, you know, one standard drink or, uh, you know, two standard uh, for women and then two standard drinks for men. I'm not worried about them you know, consuming that at dinner and then going to bed, I'm, I'm more concerned about the people who maybe have that at dinner and then have additional drinks prior to bed. Um, and then you know, ultimately are consuming more alcohol than they should, uh, particularly as it relates to sleep disturbance. Um, and then, you know, the stuff that you would see outpatient and, and may not immediately attribute to a sort of either alcohol use disorder or, or otherwise excess alcohol intake would be like myopathy and neuropathy. Now, Austin, you've talked about myopathy a bunch of different times. Um, you want to give the listeners at home just a sort of umbrella view of what myopathy is. Um, and then you talk about alcohol consumption and, and how that causes uh, myopathy. Yeah. Myopathy is a, also another umbrella term, just re- referring to some kind of pathology or some kind of problem with muscle. And so there are a whole bunch of different conditions that can cause a myopathy. And, th- and this, it's typically manifests with muscle damage that can result in muscular weakness. In some cases, it can result in some, some muscle uh, uh, pain as well. And neuropathy is a similar term that describes a pathology or problem associated with a nerve, and that can result in impaired nerve function, uh, uh, also with weakness and or with pain. So kind of similar with both muscles and and nerves. And this is something that I've actually seen plenty of in the hospital as well. And uh, alcohol consumption contributes to both of these things. Uh, I think the all the details of the mechanisms are, are probably, you know, be a bit beyond the scope. There's issues with inflammation and something called oxidative stress. There's direct toxicity to uh, certain structures in the cells and and these tissues. There can be nutritional consequences uh, for folks who have chronic heavy alcohol use and those nutritional issues can then impact the risk of myopathy and neuropathy. So there's a whole bunch of different ways that these things manifest. Um, But we definitely, you know, see it fairly commonly. And and, uh, you found some, some data here that alcohol consumption of greater than 42 drinks per week for five years is associated with muscle weakness and wasting in individuals, even those who don't have undernutrition or malnutrition. I suspect that most individuals who are consuming that level of, of alcohol are probably undernourished or, or, or frankly malnourished. But, uh, you know, we have reason to believe that even in people who uh, are otherwise well, you know, or reasonably nourished, that there are still some direct toxic effects on high levels of alcohol intake on muscles and nerves, as well as all these other organ systems that we've talked about including the, including the brain as well. Yeah. That, I just, the, that study was interesting because they actually controlled for the undernutrition. So to make sure that these people weren't just, you know, malnourished and therefore losing muscle mass secondary to malnourishment. Uh, but yeah, these people, their muscle cross-sectional area of their quadriceps was much, much smaller and their force production was way, way down compared to controls who didn't drink. So it's like, okay, if you're drinking at this level, you might, you know, have, some muscle loss directly attributable to the alcohol intake and uh, strength loss directly attributable to the alcohol intake, which is, I, I thought, a, a pretty elegant finding just because, again, if you had somebody who was just cachectic or sarcopenic or something secondary to you know malnourishment um, because they were drinking so much, you'd say, well, I know that the alcohol use uh, disorder is a risk factor, certainly, but is it the alcohol or is it the malnourishment? 
or some combination of the two. So you, yeah. to suss that out is a pretty, pretty cool finding. Yep. Uh, not something you want, certainly, but elegantly done uh, study. But yes, a lot of other issues, cognitive problems. There's data uh, out the wazoo about poor academic performance, poor memory retention, inability to pay attention um, and recall and, and all that other sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, alcohol use disorder has a lot of long-term risks that ultimately you, you should be getting this picture that while moderate use is probably fine as far as the data we, we have right now and probably doesn't negatively affect any of these health outcomes, uh, if you're drinking more than that, the the risk of, of all these other conditions and, and pathologies goes way, way up. So there's this sort of, you know, dose dependent relationship between alcohol intake and this risk for alcohol related diseases, which I think is a surprise to precisely no one. But it, it just kind of that's the overall theme here that the the poison so to speak is in the dose so that's a that's kind of the first half of this podcast we just spent 45 minutes telling you guys about the giving you the lay of the land on alcohol use what it is the metabolism of alcohol and uh, some nomenclature and then health now we're going to talk about dem gains we're talking <laughs> about performance so one of the most interesting things i found when kind of like preparing for this podcast was that the relationship between like physical activity duration per week and alcohol intake seems to be related. That is, the more active people are, they report greater rates of alcohol use and binge drinking behavior compared to their inactive counterparts. Uh, and that, that this drinking act often occurs after exercise. And this is both in uh, like competitive athletes, people who play real organized sports, and individuals who are just uh, active uh, for quote unquote health purposes. So we can't really assume that involvement in like physical activity alone. It's like, Oh, you're meeting the physical activity guidelines for adults. You know, that, that this is associated with less use of all substances. Um, it's the further like sort of nuance here ha- has to do with like the most active population we have in the United States, which are college kids. And, uh, there's like this incongruous alcohol activity association, which basically is the more active people were, the more they drank. <laughs> and they, they even coined this term called drunkorexia which is this non-medical term to describe the combination of alcohol use disorder uh, and an eating disorder. So effectively, you have some alcohol use issues, you have disordered eating, and you're also physically active, highly physically active. Uh, I, I did some more digging on drunkorexia. I don't know if I feel comfortable, you know, slapping that label on anybody. You know, I think that's probably not helpful. But as far as describing the relationship, the co-occurrence of these things, particularly in highly active populations and characterizing their behaviors, I thought that was super interesting. Um, but these folks tend to like skip meals in order to save calories or compensate for an increased calorie intake uh, from the consumption of alcoholic beverages. They exercise a lot uh, in order to compensate for the calories from those beverages. And they also drink an excessive amount of alcohol uh, sometimes to the level of being sick, uh, and, they, and, and they may even uh, use that uh, as a sort of way to purge previously consumed food. So, yeah, there seems to be that that relationship or that finding is not isolated. And there's, you know, when you look at the data from all these colleges campuses uh, where they they did these studies, it was it was really interesting that there was so there were so many people who kind of fit all this criteria. And, and again, if you you know just at face value, if you looked at an individual and they were looked to be young, healthy, and and then they reported they were very very active. You know, I, I go to the gym, you know, four days a week, and I and I do my uh, my cardiorespiratory fitness training, just like Barbell Medicine says. You, you <laughs> might assume that they're you know 
unlikely to be consuming um, alcohol in excess of what is known to be healthy. But uh, that might that might be the case, uh, particularly uh, when we look at this relationship. Yeah. In retrospect, you know, thinking about it some more, I'm like, yeah, I definitely knew some people who would have fit this category back back during that period of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so alcohol has some pretty unique effects on muscle. Uh when we, when we look at the data, uh, if we try to summarize all this, the, the main sort of takeaway should be that there's a reduction in anabolic signaling and, and therefore a reduction in muscle protein synthesis. So the anabolic or building up sort of signal that the muscles get from resistance training, from protein intake, uh, tends to be uh, blunted or attenuated. So you get a decreased activation of muscle protein synthesis and overall an increase in anabolic resistance means that you need a higher dose of anabolic signal to sort of rescue the muscle. Um, So that might be higher doses of protein, higher doses of resistance training. Uh, But again, this appears to be dose dependent. So little effect with one drink, uh, but more significant effects with with high levels of intake. So four drinks, six drinks, or more drinks. Um, we also see this increased muscle protein breakdown. Now, this is still an active area of research. Uh, we're unsure if this is due to like straight up catabolism. So breakdown of muscle tissue for other processes. So for example, gluconeogenesis, the formation of new blood sugar normally gets carried out uh, in the liver, but this gets uh, affected by alcohol intake, it reduces your ability to do that. And so the thought is that maybe you might break down muscle tissue in order to generate some of these precursors for uh, gluconeogenesis because of alcohol intake. Uh, And then again, as Austin alluded to earlier, individuals who consume a lot of alcohol tend to be at risk of deficiency in certain uh, minerals and uh, like folate, thiamine, vitamin B6, zinc, iron, uh, et cetera. And so there are a lot of different ways that alcohol intake, particularly at high levels, can affect muscle. But these are all mechanistic sort of findings. We need to look at the actual data to see what sort of effects alcohol intake at both moderate and uh, high levels of intake, what effect there is actually on both sporting performance, training performance, and uh, and sort of training outcomes. So look at it, sporting performance first. Uh, super interesting we, not we, but athletes used to use alcohol for like a performance enhancing drug. I mean, this is one of the earliest ones that that's, we have record of people using at uh, the highest level. But so for example, in the 1920 Olympics in Belgium, the American uh, runner, American sprinter, Charlie Paddock drank sherry wine with raw eggs before his hundred meter sprint final, which he won. Uh, <laughs> That was his pre-workout, I guess. Yo, let me get some wine with those raw eggs. <laughs> and uh, actually, and then in 1936, Eleanor Holm, who had won the previous uh, Olympics in 1932, she won uh, in the 100 meter backstroke. She was actually disqualified for acute alcoholism. So I wasn't sure if she like, you know, during the race, if it looked like she was drowning <laughs> and then they, they found her to be drunk. I'm not sure, but she was disqualified. But yeah, we used to think that this was like a performance enhancing drug uh, or or provided some sort of ergogenic aid. Uh, all, that doesn't really make sense with what we know about alcohol right now. So we know, for example, it's a CNS depressant, which uh, can impair balance, reaction time, accuracy of fine motor skills. Uh, and so you know, for all these reasons, people tend to uh, self-medicate with alcohol if they're trying to go to sleep. 
or relax, uh, although we discussed that it can cause sleep disturbances affecting the sleep architecture. Uh, we know that it can affect hydration in a negative way. It's a diuretic, means that you're, you get rid of more water. About 10 cc's of extra urine is created uh, per each gram of alcohol consumed, uh, provided that the beverage that you're consuming has greater than 4% alcohol by volume. Uh, so just to put this in perspective, the average human produces somewhere between 800 to 2,000 milliliters of urine per day. Uh, and so if you had the one to two drinks per day, that's kind of, uh, rec- you know, that limit that's recommended, uh, per the current guidelines, you'd be, you know, peeing out an extra 120 to 240 mils of urine, which is not impressive. But if you were training or competing in a very hot, humid environment, uh, and you were borderline dehydrated already, perhaps trying to, uh, take that pre-workout with of sherry wine with raw eggs <laughs> may not be the move. Right. Um, and then finally, as I alluded to earlier, the uh, reduced energy availability. You're, you're not as good as making at making new sugar. So gluconeogenesis is impaired. Also glycogen storage in muscle is impaired. So let's say that you were doing two-a-days or you were at the CrossFit Games and you were, had multiple events in a day. Um, so getting the glycogen restored in your muscle, it would be very, very important. Uh, probably shouldn't have alcohol post-workout if you're trying to maximize that process. Now, if you're only training once a day and you just, you know, want to have your one to two drinks uh, at night or whatever with dinner at a social setting or something like that, I'm not concerned about that at all. But if you were drinking a lot more than that, I may be concerned from a performance perspective in addition to the health perspective. Um, When we look at like specific performances, specific types of sports, like we can break this down into like aerobic, anaerobic, and then just training adaptations. So aerobic performance uh, the data existing data is not strong, uh, and not robust. There's only a handful of studies where they actually had people like drink alcohol and then do various endurance tasks, like run five miles on a treadmill. It seems like it would be pretty challenging. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. To to recruit and then get it past an institutional review board. No, I mean, I mean, I mean to, to physically do that task. I'm imagining running like a pretty long distance while you are like quite drunk. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so what they would do is prior to, they, they would have you do a baseline run in the lab. And then usually it was between one to two weeks later, they'd have you come back, drink a little bit and then do the run. And they, they might repeat that with increasing levels of alcohol intoxication to try to see like, what's the relationship. And so basically what they find is that until you're, you know, at a significantly uh, elevated blood alcohol concentration, there was no real detriment in performance. It didn't seem to improve in performance at all. It's not like people ran faster or related, you know, lower uh, ratings of perceived exertion. They were like, oh, this run is great. <laughs> um, but it didn't seem to hurt them until they were their BAC level was was uh, about 0.09, um, which is, you know, not getting up there. Again. Yeah, you're getting up there, getting up there. But it doesn't likely help either. Um this, this study is actually super interesting uh, when we talk about anaerobic performance. So that was the kind of the story on aerobic performance. But anaerobic performance, they took five sprinters from Tasmania, all right, and they had them run 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters, and 800 meters with various amounts of alcohol before each test. So the, the test took place over a pretty long period of time um, so they could do all these things on individual days. Uh, but this is the start of a trend that you'll actually see throughout the rest of these exercise science kind of papers. They're giving everybody screwdrivers 
it's just vodka and orange juice. And I'm like, I don't know if this is the preferred drink of athletes and maybe why I never made it as an athlete because I don't really like that drink. But, or maybe Smirnoff actually, you know, was a, was a study, uh, you know, uh, sponsor and they're just, you know, giving everybody vodka. But yeah, they gave them screwdrivers at increasing concentrations. Uh, and they looked at what was the effect on their 100 meter run, 200 meter, 400 meter, 800 meter. So effectively, there was no effect on the 100 meter uh, sprints, no matter how drunk these people got, which, <laughs> <That's> hilarious. <laughs> which is also, yes, is very funny. Now, to be fair, it's not like they got these people pissed drunk and then set them off on a hundred and there was no difference. Uh, basically they went up to about a 0.1 BAC, which is above the legal limit. Uh, but they didn't have any drop off in their hundred meter performance, 200 meters. There was a decrease, uh, in performance that was kind of there was this dose dependent relationship between the higher blood alcohol concentration levels. So the higher their BAC was, the worse their performance was. Uh, and you, you know, if you were a betting man, you would expect that to, that relationship to occur in both the 400 and the 800, but you do, you did, you don't see that in the 400. There was a big drop off from like being stone cold sober and having a slight increase in your blood alcohol concentration. So pretty, you know, you, you had, they had basically half a drink there was a, a pretty, pretty good size drop, but when they had, even more alcohol than that, their performance didn't drop any further. So I don't know if they just, you know, maybe decreased or increased pain tolerance so they could do the 400 or if the actual, you know, the five runners just not a big enough sample size to get a, a you know, strong effort to show that. <laughs> right, exactly. And the 800 was the most adversely affected. So uh, the take home from this for me uh, is that, look, if you're running 100, I guess you could be drunk. <laughs> that's fine but all, all jokes aside is that again we see this kind of dose dependent relationship that appears to be playing out uh maybe not as direct you know as clear as we think but at low doses of alcohol intake i'm not worried about even your acute performance right after drinking um but at high levels uh higher levels of alcohol intake yeah it's probably not great for your performance which again seems to be fairly intuitive yeah uh, austin have you ever tried swimming drunk because you were a swimmer and I, I know you swimmers do crazy stuff. So. <laughs> um, there may have been a time where there was some residual effects at a morning practice, but uh, not routinely for sure. And I yeah, don't, you, think to, I don't, I don't seem to recall a significant uh, performance drop off. I, I seem to remember those training sessions going reasonably well. <laughs> yeah, the most interesting thing was they're giving these people the booze right before they work out, and it's like. I, I think my motivation to work out would be pretty low. Yeah, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, okay. So we look at like hypertrophy. We already talked about that alcohol itself decreases muscle protein synthesis in a dose and time dependent manner. So effectively the higher the dose, the more the muscle protein synthesis uh, rate goes down. So you become more and more anabolically resistant. And with respect to time, the closer you are to ingestion, the more significant the decline is. So eight hours post alcohol intake, I'm not really thinking about your muscle protein synthesis rates being affected at all, but 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, sure, you're actively within that range. Um, so when we look at, you know, that again, it's a mechanistic sort of thing that we know to happen, uh, but does this actually affect most, you know, uh, humans? You know, what, what does the data say? So there was based, there's one study looking at this that I, I was able to find uh, that had a pretty decent protocol. Uh, they basically had people do leg extensions. They did uh, eight sets of five reps at 80% of their one RM. Then they had them do 30 minutes of low intensity steady state. Then they had them do high intensity interval training. And the idea was they were trying to replicate like a team sports practice that people would do at like a college or high school or something. 
Uh, and then they were given whey. So they got some protein, right? Uh, pretty high dose, actually. They ended up taking two uh, separate sort of drinks of 25 grams of protein. So pretty decent dose of protein overall. They got some post-workout carbs. And then they gave them 12 drinks on average <laughs> over, <laughs> over the next few hours. Like, yeah, you're just drinking a 12-pack. Uh, so what did they see? They saw a 24% reduction uh, in their muscle protein synthesis rates af- with this high level of drinking um, as long as they got protein. If they didn't get the protein, um, there was a 37% reduction in their muscle protein synthesis rate. So the protein allowed for some uh, partial rescue of their anabolic response to training. Um, as far as how does that play out in the real world, I don't know. We don't have any longitudinal studies where they were consistently giving people alcohol post-workout and seeing like, did they gain less muscle mass over time? Yeah, that's um, that's kind of what I noticed is looking through some of this stuff. A lot of it focuses on anabolic signaling and we know that you know, it's kind of tough to predict, you know, the actual hypertrophy outcomes that people are going to get from a given type of training based on the, uh, the biochemical kind of anabolic signaling alone. That relationship is not as tight as you would, uh, intuit, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. We saw the same thing with like, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs NSAIDs, right? They get paid, they gave people ibuprofen directly after a workout. It's like, oh no, your muscle protein synthesis rates are down. And then the same authors did a follow-up study where they actually tracked like lean body mass changes over 12 weeks with people getting ibuprofen and there was no change. It turns out the body's like super well prepared to deal with a host of different challenges. And uh, yeah, that didn't change anything. Do I think that drinking a 12 pack after every workout is likely to improve your muscle hypertrophy <laughs> training outcomes? No, I don't. But, but I, you already I don't. <laughs> Yeah, but you guys already knew that. Yeah, but I, I do think that, um, you know, moderate intake or even the occasional sort of high intake of alcohol post-workout is probably unlikely to change your overall trajectory with respect to muscular hypertrophy. Uh, would you be on board with that? Yeah, I would. And and just so people, I guess, have, have an idea, I mean, we can use our personal examples if you're comfortable with them. How many drinks would you say you might have in a given week? Uh four maybe yeah on like a a, a social week that's kind of what I, my range is pretty much zero to four pretty much most of the time uh, in terms yeah. of total drinks per week and that that fluctuates um, based on a bunch of things but very rarely will it will it go you know much higher than that um just so people have an idea of like you know what do we do <laughs> yeah yeah well you know i remember one of our very first youtube q a's or you know, q a's that we posted on youtube and people were like what's in the cup and, you know, like <laughs> whis- whiskey, They're like, oh, I can't believe that you drink. It's like, what? Like, it's a totally normal thing for adults to do if they choose. Uh, and I don't know any high level strength competitor that is a complete abstainer. It doesn't mean that they don't exist. I'm just saying, like, I know a lot of people who compete at a high level in barbell sports and none of them abstain from alcohol, which to me sort of hints at like maybe this isn't a huge deal provided it doesn't become alcohol use disorder and you know you don't have issues with binge drinking and alcohol affecting other aspects of your life that yep. would preclude you from regular training and uh, you know intelligent nutrition practices and all those other sort of things so 
I just am curious, like, how do they get these these subjects to drink a twelve pack? Yeah, that's a, that is that is a lot of vodka. It seems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, twelve standard drinks. So that would have been 12, 12, 12 screwdrivers. <laughs> twelve screwdrivers. Again, with the screwdrivers. Um, yeah. So another thing that people will likely be concerned about is the changes are the changes in the hormonal milieu um, with respect to you know alcohol. Like, oh, but doesn't it lower testosterone and raise estrogen and this, that, and the other? Uh, it's complicated. So one, none of this stuff matters in general. Uh, and what I mean by that is it provided these hormones are still within the normal limits, it doesn't really matter if you have higher or lower testosterone levels. Like in particular, measure. in particular, in the like immediate post workout period, um, yeah. we, we can feel pretty confident in saying that those immediate post-workout fluctuations aren't going to make or break people. Whereas, you know, if somebody lives in a clinically hypogonadal low testosterone range, then sure, there's going to be consequences of that. But I think, and we've talked about this before, about how people make a lot more of the immediate post-workout fluctuations in hormones than, than uh, in comparison to how much it actually matters. Yeah. And, and even, you know, to, to that end, I, I would say, you know, there's a condition called uh, exercise-induced hypogonadism in, in the male, which is effectively a, a, your hypogonadal based on your testosterone findings, but you have no symptoms and no decrease in performance. And so the question there becomes, uh, what do you do with this? Do you treat it or not? Um, because the idea is that there are so many redundant mechanisms that in the human body that allow it to compensate for varying levels of testosterone or other hormones as well. So it's like you take a blood draw and you look at your testosterone level. It tells you very little about what's going on at the level of the tissue. You could have increased androgen receptor density and sensitivity and different tissue concentrations of hormones. It's just more complex than like, well, the testosterone level in my blood is this, and that means this. It's like very rarely is that the case. So yes, there are changes in your testosterone level with respect to alcohol. At low doses of testosterone, it actually appears that your testosterone levels go up a little bit. But at higher doses of testosterone, it appears to go down. And you see the, the opposite relationship with estrogen uh, in men. Um, so estrogen levels go down a little bit at low intakes of alcohol and tend to go up at high levels of uh, intake. But again, to the extent that this actually matters, it's just more complicated. And again, in the post-workout window, I this means nothing to me. It's just, it, it represents poor study design because it means that you don't, you haven't looked at the data on this and you decided to investigate it because you thought it was important, but it's not. So... <laughs> Moving on. That's hypertrophy. Now we're talking about strength. This study uh, was actually pretty interesting. Um, what they did is they tested these individuals one rep max back squat. Now they did a as a Smith machine back squat. So, you know, for all the exercise fizz haters out there, you can just discount the study because they use a Smith machine and that's it. You don't want to learn anything. That's fine. Turn off the podcast. But if you're <laughs> curious, they found their one RM Smith machine, uh, uh, Smith machine squat. And then they did four sets of 10 at 110% of that. They just did eccentric training, which blows my mind. I looked at the methods on this. So effectively what they had the subjects do it were come into the lab after a warm up. They loaded 110% on there and they lowered the bar under a three second tempo and then 
the spotter on on either side of the barbell. They then they lifted the bar back up to the starting position, and then they did their second rep and their third rep and their fourth <laughs> for sets of ten, four sets of ten. I have to assume these people were not very strong because that I shudder to imagine what it would feel like to take one hundred ten percent of your one RM so, for tens, ten for tens eccentrically with a tenth. Yeah. So just yeah. So let's just use six hundred for your best one RM squat. <laughs> yeah, take six uh, sixty down forty times. Yeah, six sixty <laughs> down forty times. Yeah, they had three minute rest between sets. So in any case, they they did four sets of ten with one hundred ten percent of their one RM three with the three oh oh tempo. Uh, basically, they were trying to get these folks sore, right? And they were going to try to see like, hey, does this affect any sort of indicator for muscular power or muscular force production? How they were testing this was a vertical jump, twenty yard sprint, a shuttle run. And then uh, subjective ratings of soreness. And they were basically trying to figure out, does like alcohol, after making someone real, real sore, does alcohol make it any worse? Okay. So after the workout, they got either placebo or, guess you guessed it already, (laughs) vodka plus orange juice, more (laughs) screwdrivers. They basically did uh, a total of five drinks within 30 minutes, uh, which is... A substantial amount. The blood alcohol concentration for those who were getting screwdrivers was 0.11, which is high. Uh, and then for the placebo, it was zero. Now, which is interesting on the placebo group, they actually like lined the rim of the glass with Smirnoff vodka so that they didn't know it was a placebo, which I guess works for maybe the first drink, but <laughs> right, probably, yeah. not, probably not the rest of the drinks. You get unblinded, uh, you get unblinding pretty quick in that study. Yeah, you're like, I'm not drunk. What's the deal? <laughs> um, so anyway, the folks who were getting the screwdrivers, they did report increased levels of soreness, but there was no difference between either group uh, in their vertical jump after the eccentric uh, exercise protocol in their 20-yard sprint uh, or their shuttle run test. So effectively, they didn't find any sort of force production changes uh, with alcohol administration at, a, again, pretty high amount uh, post-workout how do I interpret this? How does this, you know, make me want to speak about alcohol intake in strength athletes? Again, I just feel like it's dose dependent, right? So low doses, moderate doses of alcohol post-workout, I feel like just don't matter uh, provided they fit into, you know, an otherwise health promoting diet, which I think has an even larger effect, but yeah, high, really high doses of alcohol intake. I feel like that's going to be detrimental to your gains long-term. So if you're drinking enough to get drunk, I feel like that's probably where that threshold where you're, you're likely negatively affecting your strength and your hypertrophy. Uh, but again, if it happens only once out of every, you know, 10, 15 sessions, I don't know that I worry about it at all. Otherwise, uh, except for the, you know, habit of becoming intoxicated on a regular basis, which, you know, there, there are that, that there are other concerns there. So the last sort of thing with respect to performance has to do with training adaptations. And this study is actually pretty new. It's called the beer hit study. Uh, So we're basically just trying to look at like, does alcohol otherwise affect any sort of training adaptation that we can measure? So there were five groups they split these young adults into. So there's one control group. They got no alcohol. They didn't exercise. Another group exercised and got beer post-workout. Another group exercised and got uh, spirit. So again, vodka post-workout another group exercised and got water post-workout and the final group got exercised and got non-alcoholic beer to see if there was actually anything in the beer say for the alcohol that maybe either negatively or positively affected training outcomes so these folks did body weight circuits these hit 
high intensity interval training body weight circuits twice a week for 10 weeks. Uh, they were doing stuff like high knees, burpees, squats, lunges, all sorts of stuff, uh, with increasing volume and intensity. They started at 40 minutes for each session and then worked all the way up to 65 minutes per session again, twice a week, 10 weeks. They did a bunch of different measurements. They measured their VO2 max. They measured their vertical jump, hand grip strength, et cetera. There were no differences between groups for any of the measurements. They, they all improved their VO2 max. They all improved their vertical jump. They all improved their hand grip strength and alcohol appeared to have no effect on their training adaptations. Now, granted, they were only drinking one to two drinks post-workout. And so that falls right in line with what we just said that, you know, low to moderate intake of alcohol. Again, I just, it doesn't really, it's not a factor that I would consider when looking at exercise recovery, when looking at performance adaptations or, and, you know, as far as how it affects health, I think barring some sort of, uh, unique individual response, I think it's probably perfectly okay. But when the dosing gets higher and higher, I think that's when you, you start to be more concerned. Uh, Austin, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that, we have covered this in and delivered the message. We're ready for some take home points. Let's do it. Okay. So, um, so I think that we've made the point clear that there are, um, pretty, uh, pretty substantial risks associated with a habitual high level of intake from a health standpoint, uh, abundant evidence, uh, across a number of different, um, you know, populations and organ systems and health related outcomes showing that high levels of intake are associated with numerous health risks and that uh, alcohol use disorder contributes to a very substantial burden of global disease, contributes to mental illness, you know, depression, anxiety, things like that, and an increased risk of death. So that is, um, you know, a big overarching method message from the, the health standpoint that we hope to get across. Uh, from the training and performance uh, uh, standpoint and training adaptation standpoint, we have described this uh, idea of a dose-dependent effect, meaning that low levels of, of intake are unlikely to have significant effects. And if people want kind of a general category of what a lower level of intake might be, you could estimate something like less than 0.5 of grams of ethanol per kilo of body weight. And then you can refer back to our standard drink definitions earlier to figure out how many drinks that is um, for you. Um, whereas higher levels of intake, for example, uh, you know, greater than a gram of ethanol per, per kilo of body weight are going to be much more likely to have significant effects on uh, performance and recovery. And of course, you know, the, the other aspect of this is not just the intake side, but how high level of performance we're actually talking about here. So, you know, if you are consuming high amounts of alcohol and you are a very high level performer, that's kind of where you might notice uh, uh, some effects on, on performance and, and, uh, and uh, training adaptations. Uh, but again, the, the low levels of intake kind of within the recommended limits that we've laid out uh, don't really raise a ton of concern for us, particularly in the context of an otherwise kind of healthy uh, uh, dietary and health uh, pattern. Uh, the other important points that uh, hopefully we've conveyed are that if you are a coach or if you're a clinician, that taking a good social history on your client or patient is uh, really important. You'll be surprised the more you um, ask about this, the more you'll find. And so we recommend using a validated uh, kind of screening tool like the Audit C questionnaire, which we will have linked. And then uh, you found it uh, very notable uh, as an important take-up point that researchers love to use screwdrivers uh, to get participants uh, hammered drunk before, during, or after exercise. Look, if you're in college and you're an exercise science major or like some sort of related major and one of your professors during class is like, who likes vodka? <laughs> you're about to get suckered into 
some sort of exercise science study and and you know you're about to get hammered i I don't know if that's look if you're into that that's fine but don't you know don't say i didn't warn you (laughs) perfect all right this is episode 118 talked about alcohol thank you so much for tuning into the barbell medicine podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine as always i'm with dr austin baraki i'm dr jordan feigenbaum hey do us a favor wherever you're listening to this podcast uh leave us a five-star rating and a review really helps drive traffic to our podcast which uh you know gives us motivation to do these things which we drop every monday uh wherever you get your podcast from so please do that also head over to the barbellmedicine.com website we have a new article there every friday and uh you might find that interesting. You sign up for our newsletter, the latest nuance in health and fitness delivered to your inbox every month. And check us out on YouTube. Search Barbell Medicine on YouTube. We put up new videos all the time and we'd love to have you there as well. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you guys next Monday. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.